This is Amstigator, a podcast founded on purpose, but focused on the path to get there. Experience is the best teacher, right? And in this season of Amstigator, we're going all in on female perspective of women and wisdom as we answer one specific question. What's the lesson here? Centoya Brown-Long has the ultimate story of transformation. You could even call it Murder to Mercy. Matter of fact, that was the title of the Netflix documentary about her. Centoya was adopted into a loving family, but still had a really troubled childhood, going in and out of state custody. By 2004, at the age of 16, she was a runaway and started running with a guy who forced her into prostitution in Nashville. One night in August of that same year, A man picked her up for sex for $150. She killed that man in bed because she thought he was going to kill her. Centoya was tried for murder in adult court, and then in 2006, she was found guilty and sentenced to 51 years in prison. She turned 17 there, 18 there, both in solitary confinement. She got out into general population, but then went back into solitary confinement at age 19. We spent a lot of time in this interview talking about solitary and then also how angry she was to the point that she decided God didn't exist. Matter of fact, no higher power existed. Nobody, nothing. But something changed for her in early 2017. A man she didn't know, named Jamie Long, wrote a letter to her in prison. He had seen her story on YouTube and felt that God was calling him to reach out to her and tell her she was going to be released soon. She shares that part of their love story because they did end up getting married while she was in prison just before she ended up getting out of prison. It was Jamie, completely him, who led her back to spirituality. And when she decided to believe again, You can't even imagine the type of things that started to come through for her. And the words divine intervention don't even start to cover it. Celebrities started backing her case. Unprecedented things started happening in the courts. And eventually in 2019, Centoya was granted clemency by the outgoing governor. It blew her entire legal team away because the stuff that happened to her doesn't happen. There is zero precedent. What you're going to find in this episode is that Centoya has no hate or resentment when she talks about what happened to her. She shares how she realized she'd never be able to think her way out of prison. She had to totally surrender and trust that God was the only way out. This is an unapologetically spiritual episode. It's going to leave you in some places totally speechless. Here's Centoya Brown-Long with the lesson of spiritual surrender. Okay, so here's, here's where I want to start. I spend a lot of time in this podcast talking with people about the cages we put ourselves in, mm-hmm. the the beautiful golden prisons that we hold the keys to that we can just release ourselves if we make that choice. I want to start with you on this real reality that you were actually mm-hmm. in one of these cells, not, not one like that so many of us put ourselves in, You were in an actual physical place where you were caged. And I want to talk through how you overcame 15 years of that to get to this place now where, I mean, I see you, you are a completely different woman. Mm. 
everything about what put you in that place is opposite of what it is now. So how does a person go through liberating themselves from a cage? Uh, you know, I think for me, there was always just this spirit of defiance that lived inside of me. So from the very first moment that they said that I was going to be in that cage for the rest of my life, it was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm absolutely not. And so there would be moments like when I felt overwhelmed um, especially the time that I was in solitary confinement and like, you know, it's like, I just can't, I can't do this. I can't, mm. I cannot do this, especially not for the amount of time they're telling me I'm going to. But then there was that voice that just says, no, you are, you're going to keep pushing through. You're going to do it. Um, and so there's just that. And that mindset just started to develop where it's like, I don't care what they say. I don't care what they tell me. What I know and what I'm going to stand on is that I can be free no matter where I am with whatever situation. Um, so the cages that people try to put you in, like labels and tethering you to the past, I don't I don't have to let that define me and dictate how I live my life, and I don't. And so I think that that spirit just kind of just came about because I was put in that situation, because mm -hmm. there were so many people who were trying to write my story for me. Yeah. Um, it's just that spirit where it's like, no, that's not what I'm standing on, and I'm not accepting that. Well, and when I hear it from you now, I would, I'm would i going to project here. I would imagine initially that defiance mm -hmm. did not come from peace and love. I would think that defiance probably came from anger mm -hmm. because you weren't listened to in your trial, and you're a teenager being put in solitary confinement. That just blows my mind uh, for so many reasons, and clearly it's it's – a major part of the reason why you're out now because so many people said, well, nothing about what happened to you was treated the way it was supposed to be treated. Mm -hmm. um, so help me understand kind of the, the basis for where that defiance came from initially, and was it anger and pain, or was it from somewhere else? I mean, at the time, I didn't know where it came from, but it was always the Holy Spirit just telling me no just keep going. And so I wouldn't say it was really anger. It just was always this feeling like, well, that's not right. This mm -hmm. doesn't sit right with me at all. Um, so you're telling me that, you know, you're just going to throw me away, but I know that there's something within me worth salvaging. I know that God can still do great mm -hmm. things with me and through me. Um, so that's, that's really that, that mindset that, that was behind that whole spirit of like defiance yeah. is what I would call it. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely the Lord just, just pushing me on, even when I didn't recognize it, even when I was angry at him. That's what I was going to ask you, so. exactly that. Mm -hmm. Did you believe in God when you were in prison initially? So I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Missionary Baptist Church, uh, went every Sunday, every Wednesday. Many times I did not want to go, but my mother made sure that I was going to go because I did not have a choice in the matter. <laughs> um, and I'm thankful for that now. Right, because she did plant some seeds. But I really learned a lot about, you know, like religion. And it was when I heard scripture. So these are just kind of like anecdotal phrases or encouraging words or like fairy tales kind of. It wasn't really real to me. And so I remember when I first 
was arrested and when I was facing trial, I figured, okay, well, this is the formula. So if I do everything in mm. here, then this is what's going to happen. So I was kind of treating God like a genie in a bottle. And I even <laughs> like here are the steps. Yes, this is what you have to do. So you must fast and pray. And I tried wow. that. And it lasted for a few hours because I love to eat. <laughs> um, but I was like, yeah, this is what I this is what I need to do. I even had someone bring me a mustard seed because, you know, I mm. said, well, it says if I have the faith of a mustard seed. Yeah. So I'm just going to hold this mustard seed every time I pray yeah. that I don't get life in prison. And then it's going to happen because that's how this works. Yeah. Um, that's not how this works. Right. That is not. And so I remember the day that I was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, I went back to my cell. I kept it together because, again, I wasn't going to let them. Yeah, can't let them see Mm-mm. the emotion of it. Yeah. No. That first day of my trial, I remember, like, I was really overcome with emotion. And the prosecutor in my case, you know, he said some negative things, was talking about me. Um, I said, I bet he won't see me cry again. Wow. I bet he won't see it again. And so I kept it together till I got back to my cell. And I just kept the lights off, acted like everything was fine with the guards who were escorting me, and I just fell apart there in my room. And one last time I just prayed. I said, God, if you let me out of here, I'll get out and I'll tell the world Mm -hmm. about what you did for me. Just like all those people in in the Word and how they wrote in the Bible, I'll do that same thing. Like (laughs) I will live my life just telling everyone what you did for me. And that was the last prayer that I prayed for over a decade because after that, that anger just started to settle in and it settled in so deep that it went beyond anger to the point where I said, well, he doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. There is no God. Okay. One of my professors is a guy by the name of Rubel Shelley. And so he's like this, you know, prolific philosopher when it comes to, to everything, all things God and the existence of God. And I would debate him and leave him speechless. Wow. Um, And we should point out, you're talking about a a professor at Lipscomb University. mm -hmm. It's a Nashville university that has a program with the prison where you were allowing women uh, imprisoned to get their bachelor's degree. And Lipscomb is a Christian university. So like we have to lay that foundation. So you were, of course. Which was which was odd. Well, I mean, yeah. ish, odd-ish, but but I think it's perfect. But God, God, God knew what he was doing. You know, I had always gone through this and like through that anger phase, I kind of told myself that I wasn't good enough Mm. to be, you know, Christian, which I don't really use that word. I say I'm a follower of Christ. I follow Jesus. But I said I wasn't perfect. I wasn't good enough. Those people, they're perfect. And, you know, God loves them because they do no wrong. They live Mm. these squeaky clean lives. And me, I'm just filthy. I'm dirty, right? Um, But these people, they love Jesus. And they loved me because they loved Jesus. And Mm -hmm. they didn't see anything about my past. They didn't see anything about where I was currently. They just loved me because that was me and that was enough. And beyond that, like, they actually showed that love. Mm -hmm. and that They embodied that for you. Yes. Wow. Yeah, and they developed just this community for those of us who have been cast out from society. And so it was like when I finally took the time to sit down and read the Word for myself and learn about how Jesus was moving when he was down here among the people Mm – that's that's what he did. He yeah. went into those communities of people who've been outcast and you know, he loved them. He fellowship with them. He had community with them. And so that was that was a really important seed that was planted. But again, I still was angry. Yeah. So I was <laughs> looking for any excuse to discount it. Um I went through all the phases. I had a phase where you know, I had got myself a prayer rug and said, well, I'm going to read the Quran because maybe there's truth in that. Or I'm going to read the Bhagavad Gita. Maybe there's truth in that. Maybe there's something here. Um, 
I went through all these phases, even that that phase where it's like, oh, the universe. So I know there's something, but it has to be the universe. Because deep down inside, I knew there was something bigger than myself, but I was so angry at God that I I said— That God's not an option, right? Like that's what you were saying. Yeah, it's not him. I'm not believing any of that Jesus talk. Yeah. And so it was anger. Yeah. That feels—to me, this feels like the ultimate woundedness. It's Mm -hmm. something that I think a lot about and have conversations probably outside of this podcast about um, most often, about the woundedness that so many of us feel around religion and around spirituality. Um, You had the most severe case, I think I've—or most—I'm not going to say case. I'm going to say circumstance. You're the most severe circumstance that I've ever seen of someone who had every reason— to say that there is no such thing as God because you had been abandoned. Most often people are just in the imprisonment of their minds, but you were actually in in a physical situation that was much more severe Mm -hmm. and much more dire, and there were zero options. Mm -hmm. There were zero options, and you said, absolutely not, I'm done, this this guy, (laughs) God, this this person doesn't exist. The man in the clouds. Yeah, no, because clearly he's... Uh, he's forgotten me. I want to talk about the three total years you spent in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. What did that do for you mentally? I mean, it, it broke me mentally. Yeah. Um, that's that's not a condition that any human is supposed to be in. I wouldn't even have a dog yeah. in a cage for extended periods of time. We see what happens when dogs are treated that way. Yeah. Um, so just think about humans and right. the human mind. You have grown and men. as a teenager, that's yeah, that's I cannot sixteen to eighteen, and then again in nineteen, my heart just breaks. It it really breaks. Yeah. And the only way that I can get through this interview with you is knowing <laughs> like knowing you now and not knowing you then. Yeah, he had a plan. It's yeah. all right, and he's used it wisely. Everything that that has happened with me, he's turned that into something beautiful. But solitary confinement, if you can just imagine, like your bathroom at your house like that's where you live you don't go out to your kitchen you don't go out to your bedroom like you live in that bathroom that's all there is you don't get interactions with people there's no one to just have conversations with you don't have your phone Mm -hmm. that you can contact people on or look things up you may have a few books or magazines or things like that that's pretty much all you have your only connection to the outside world you have a guard who visits you three times a day to bring you a food tray sometimes on the weekends only feed you twice um, and that's pretty much it. Do you have any sunlight? You have a window about this wide with oh. bars where sunlight can come through depending on where your room is. And so my room was the build. There were two buildings. And so sometimes sunlight came in through the middle of those. But the only thing I could see out my window really were dog kennels, literally dog kennels, um, where they would take us out to wreck every now and again. Mm. And handcuffs, shackles, you get to walk around in this dog kennel. And so that's what solitary confinement is like. You don't have any kind of stimulation um, on a regular basis. Uh, a lot of times people, they just lose it. I did. Yeah. Like you you literally are stuck there in your mind. You have all this trauma that you're carrying with you. Everything yeah. that you that you brought into that cell with you is is there with you. And you have to for sit that with time. it. Yeah, you have to sit with and it. And there's no one. This is the other thing, too, that I feel like it would be so god hard about the situation there's no one else giving you any other track like no one and i mean like an audio it. track like think about the other inputs we hear from people there's no encouragement from any other voice mm-hmm. it's you and your thoughts and your demons and all the things that you brought into that tiny room mm-hmm. 
23 hours a day. Wow. Yeah, one hour they let you out. They handcuff you, shackle you. Yeah. Um, you get handcuffed through a pie flap, what they call a pie flap, and a door. You get handcuffed, and then you have to go kneel on your bed, and they shackle you. They lead you to a shower that has a metal door on it, and then you go in there. They take your handcuffs off, and then they have a pie flap on the bottom and take your shackles off, and you sit there in the shower until they come get you and let you out, and then they'll lock you in another room, um, what they call the quiet room, where there's a phone in there, and you can use the phone. So, but that's it. And you have one hour exactly to do everything you need to do. Wow. Mm-hmm. Why did you go to solitary as a 16-year-old? Just because I was 16. Wow. So I was tried as an adult right. and I was still a child. Right. So by some strange logic, they've come to the conclusion that, you know, kids and adults are not peers. They're not the same. We cannot treat them the same. Mentally, they're not on the same level. But we can give them the same punishment. Yeah. We can give them the same treatment under law. But there's still that fact that they're not the same. So when it comes to housing kids who have been set to be tried as adults, they have to be housed separately. And so it's by sight and sound is what they say. So you're not supposed to be able to see any adults. That that doesn't work. You're not supposed to be able to hear any adults or communicate with adults. That doesn't work either. But you will be kept in solitary confinement just because you're a kid until you turn 18. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a punishment for something else, I, which, well, as you pointed out, we know now there's so much more research now about how dangerous that can be for the development of a human, especially the development of a teenager. I just can't even imagine. I didn't even know how to talk to people at the end of that. When I finally was let out and could live among the other people there in the jail when I was 18, I had to learn how to have conversations. I would literally sit at the card tables when they were playing cards and and doing things and just listen to how they interacted so I could learn how to have conversations with people. Well, it's not like you even knew how, though. You you know, you're watching it, but you still ended up back in solitary. Oh, yeah. Well, very quickly. I lasted about two months out among everyone else, and and then I got into it with my roommate because she stole something of mine, Mm -hmm. and I went right back to SEG. Yeah. Tell me what books you were reading and what, um, you know, I'd mentioned earlier, like there was no track, like no other audio track that you were hearing from any other person, but you had to have been putting something in your mind. I'm going to presume it's books. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you start reading in those first few years in prison as you really started to think, oh my God, I'm really going to be here my whole life? So aside from the Bible, obsessively trying to, to figure out yeah. how to crack the code, um, I was obsessed with case law. And so I would have my attorneys print off stacks and stacks of case law. Mm. I didn't have a roommate in my cell, but there were still bunks. So on my top bunk, it was filled with stacks of Mm. case law, which is um, legal documents stating, well, this case was ruled in this way because of these things. And so you learned a lot about the law. And I would just be obsessed with it. Mm. I had a Black's Law Dictionary. I still have that dictionary at my house. It's just tattered and torn always trying to read and understand mm-hmm. the law. I had LSAT books yeah. um, trying to get into the mind frame of understanding yeah. how they make decisions and how I can present arguments in a way that would get them to understand my point of view. Right. Did, did you feel like no one understood your view? I did. Even I did. your attorneys and yeah. the people who were supposed to be working with you and for you? Mm-hmm. There were times. Um, you know, attorneys... Like, they can only operate within the framework that they have. Yeah. Like, they can't just go in and say, this is what you have to do because it's the right thing. They have to base everything on 
statute on Mm -hmm. precedent, on what the laws are. And so I would sit there and I read, you know, United States versus Surface, United States versus Sisson, Breed versus Jones, all of these cases. Is this normal, by the way, or does everybody do this or just you? I don't know. Probably just me. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. And then the law clerks, every law clerk who probably works at a prison, they probably do that. But just every single case, United States versus Ball, all of them. I would sit there and I would dissect them and I would read them over and over again. I would handwrite motions and ask my attorneys to file this. And they would always say, well, no, it's a juvenile transfer. It's just, you know, a probable cause. I says, no, it's a bifurcated proceeding. And so we would argue like getting screaming matches over this because they did not, they didn't get it. Yeah. I, this is interesting because I, I wonder, I'm thinking about you as a teenager, as a 20-something at the time, having these arguments with attorneys. With 20 years experience yeah, as right. an attorney. So like old white men, you were you were arguing with old white men, right? One old white men and one older white woman. Okay, okay. Yes. Thank you. So you're having these these screaming matches, and I'm thinking, where does that come from for you? And And was it from this defiance around I will not be here my whole life or where did it come from it was that and then desperation yeah and so there was just this desperation to get out of this you know this cage that I was in and I kept thinking that I could think my way out of it yeah I kept thinking that you know if I follow their rules and you know I'd read Solinsky's rules for radicals if I if I force them to live up to their own rules then that's the key that's mm-hmm. how I'm going to get out of here so for years I had thought that yeah you were thinking your way through the problem when thinking yeah. was not going to be the answer no the liberation you needed came from somewhere else absolutely because you know these systems like the institutions like this, these are built by people at the end of the day and we're not perfect. Um, and, and not everybody cares to do what the right thing is. Yeah. They don't, they don't really have a heart to do what God is calling them to do. And I also feel like in a lot of the way our prison system is set up, there's not incentive for things to be done quickly or for things to be done correctly. They're just, God, for, for lack of a better word, there, there are a lot of people who are incarcerated are not treated like people. Mm-hmm. And it happens in Every state, in every county, you know, I would imagine that every now and then you came across someone who would do right, but mostly, am am I correct in assuming that most people don't, in those places of power within prison systems, they're not doing right because they don't care about you. Yeah. And then they're just cogs in the wheel, I find, and they feel like they could just check boxes and do things as usual. And that's the way. Um, if they were thoughtful people, then they would see that there actually is incentive in treating people right and making sure that you get positive outcomes yeah. for the residents in your care. Um, but unfortunately, we're not all the way there. There are some <laughs> people who get that, but but not all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I went through that whole phase of trying to think my way yeah. out of prison. Fast forward to November 2016, my very last appeal which was before the federal court, a habeas corpus appeal was denied. And with the federal courts, you don't have a right to appeal it to a higher court. So if this court in the district says that you can appeal it, they don't issue a cert, then it's done. That's it. It's done. And at that point, it'd been 10 years since your conviction, right? Weren't you convicted in 2006? Yeah, 10 years, 10 years. So I've been locked up 12 years total. Mm -hmm. And so they they didn't issue a cert. It was done. The only possible option was clemency, and that's, and that's not laughable. even a, that's like not yeah. even an option, right? I mean, 
It's such it's a low percentage. It's not realistic. It's such a low percentage of people who can actually even make the petition, mm-hmm. let alone have it read. Right. I mean, yeah. this is so so low. Yeah, because you're depending on one person who is in charge of the entire state. So all these different areas of the state that make decisions on a daily basis, you're dependent on them to see you yeah, and to give you an opportunity, to give you a second chance. And then you have to make it past the parole board, which is its own beast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was not a chance. Just to put it in perspective, less than 1% of people who file clemency applications even get a hearing. Mm. before the parole board that's not clemency that's just a hearing right like that's just a hearing just a hearing just a hearing so you have the parole board who hears parole regular parole dates so if you reach that expert that eligibility date and then you have the executive clemency unit who issues these applications to the parole board to say is this something that you want to look at and have a hearing on to pass it on to the governor and what happens is if the parole board says they're not going to give you a hearing your application is dead it's not supposed to be because they don't have the authority to deny you Mm. but they're the gateway yeah they're the gatekeepers and so they like to take that very seriously and kind of just toss the applications they don't feel are worthy of a hearing instead of passing that on to the governor which is rightfully what they should do by law because he's the only one with the authority to approve or deny but that's not what happened so less than one percent of people file this application even get heard on the matter and so it wasn't really realistic and there was only two people in the entire 15 years that I was incarcerated that had got clemency Um, one was a woman uh, named Gloria House the only reason we knew she had got clemency is because she kept coming back so she got clemency and she would get violated and come right back wow. did not make a good name for people who are trying to get clemency wow. and the other one was a wonderful woman by the name of Gail Owens who was very um, influential there in the facility she was on death row um, and she got pardoned from death row and her sentence was commuted to life in prison and so well, she didn't get pardoned she got exonerated excuse me Um, and her sentence was commuted to life in prison, and she got parole. And she lived a beautiful life out here in the free world until she passed. Wow. Wow. So when in November 2016, when your final appeal was denied, tell me the difference between the way your attorneys treated that and the way you treated that. Um, So I was devastated, and I think I came to a point where I was like, okay, maybe I am going to do life in prison. Because this whole time I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting There's out no of way. here. Yeah. yeah, I'm not. I didn't even feel in my spirit that I was doing life. When someone asked me how much time I had, what my sentence was, I felt like I was lying when I said mm. life. That it I just had never felt years. right. And did you feel like when you say that, I feel that in my gut, like, yeah. mm, no, we're not staying here. Yeah. Where did you feel it? That's where I felt it. It just like yeah. – and even in my mind – like it was, it was in my mind. It was, it was all through mm. throughout where it was like when I said I have life in prison, it felt like I was lying. Like that wasn't true, but I did let the enemy get in my head when that last appeal was denied because again, I was thinking with my head thinking, this is this is how it's gonna work. I'm gonna file an appeal. I had by that time had so many influential people that were working on my case. Like, some of the top attorneys in the state of Tennessee were working on my case. I had a former Court of Criminal Appeals judge who knew the Court of Criminal Appeals in and out because he sat on it. Yeah. I had the former Supreme Court Chief Justice here in Tennessee working as my attorney. Wow. And so in my mind, it was like, yeah. I got, I got this, this on lock. Yeah, yeah like, this I is done. This. <laughs> so, but 
but none of that worked. And so I was I was pretty hopeless. And my attorneys, they felt kind of the same. And even with clemency, they knew it was slim. They thought maybe I'd have a chance at getting my sentence reduced to 30 years. We had started working with a legislator to try to get some legislation passed for wow. parole eligibility for juveniles. But really, we just we were kind of defeated at that point. I just keep hearing over and over again this thing that you said just a moment ago of like I had to I tried to think my way out of this problem Mm -hmm. you tried to think your way out and it never worked nope which again let's go back to this idea of of being in imprisoned right so like people who have not been incarcerated, we imprison ourselves all the time. We imprison ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. And mo- usually we have the keys to that imprisonment. We can we can make a choice or we can surrender or we can just throw our hands up and say, I- I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Someone else has to help me. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's not going to be somebody that I see right here who has a name and an address and a phone number. It's going to be somebody else. It's going to be the, a higher power that's going to help me through this. You have to make a choice on who you believe. Yeah. And so that's something I learned from my now husband. Yeah. So right after that appeal was denied, three months later, I got a letter from this man in Texas. Some random guy. Random like, you guy don't know this guy. Yeah. And where did he hear about you? He saw an old YouTube documentary that was on PBS. And this man, especially me knowing him now, he does not sit and watch anything. Like, he doesn't. Like, he'll watch it if it has something to do with sports and yeah. music. That's it. Can watch that for hours. But but he's very spiritual, though. Oh, and so he must have, so. like, seen... He's heard from the Lord from a young age. So he must have seen or felt something when he saw you and just, like, no, watch this. And just... Yeah. It, that that has to be what it was. Yeah. And he watches this documentary on you. Um, a lot of that was taken from this documentary called Me Facing Life which aired on Independent Lens in 2010, I think. I think it was 2010. And so in, I think, 2018, they did Sentencing Children with a Tennessean. And so that was a series of of videos. But he had seen the 2010 documentary that was just on the YouTube recommendations for, like, days. And he never really paid attention. This is a TV that was always on in a studio because he was working on his music, trying to finish up an album. And the Lord just kept telling him to watch it. And so he said, okay, I'm going to watch a little bit of it. And he sat there and watched the whole entire thing over an hour, which is a feat in itself because, again, <laughs> his attention span is not great when it comes to stuff. Um, and so he sat there and watched it, and then he heard the Lord say, writer, writer. And he was like, and say what? <laughs> you know, he doesn't just reach out to random people. Yeah. He's not that guy. Um, he's very low-key, very totally. to himself. He stays around the house if he's not working in the studio, which is where he is now. But... He was like, okay, I'm a writer, but say what? He said, tell her to get out. She's getting out of prison and prepare herself. Good Lord. And so I get this letter. And the very Early last 2017, thing, right? Early 2017. Yes. You've given up all hope. Mm-hmm. I get this letter. The very the reason why I wrote him back is the very last thing the Lord told him to do. After he put it in the envelope, he told him to take it out and burn the edges. And I was getting all kinds of mail at that time, like sporadically, when people would see the documentary. And I had stopped writing back. Um, just because it got kind of weird. I would get some some strange letters from people. I know there were some people, if I wrote them back, they would post it online. I felt that was oh, really intrusive. Yeah. Um, and so I just stopped writing back letters. I would read some every now and then, but I really didn't respond. But this one caught my attention because the letters 
the edges were burnt. I was like, that's kind of cool. I've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then he put pictures of himself, and he is fine. <laughs> so He is so cute. I will tell you, he is yes. a handsome man. Yes, girl. <laughs> and so I wrote him back. And the way he worded the letter that he sent me, it wasn't in a way where he was trying to start up like a communication with me. It was yeah. like he was just delivering a message. Yeah, this is what God told me to tell you, God and here told it you, is. told me to tell you he's bigger than any judge, any jury, any state, statue, anything, and you're about to get out, so prepare yourself. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and at the bottom of the letter he had wrote, it was so prophetic, hashtag Free Centoya 2017. And this is in January 2017. I wrote him back. He responded. We just started writing back and forth. And at this point, I need to point out, like, he reaches out to you because he felt like God was telling him to reach out to you. Mm -hmm. And you don't even believe Mm -mm. in God. And that's what I told him when he he wrote me that. I was like, yeah, well, I don't believe in God. uh, But you're cute, though. (laughs) Like, I'll talk to you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so he wrote, wrote me back and he was like, basically, you don't believe in God because you don't know his son, Jesus. And he was teaching me that everything I had come to know about, you know, religion was not what it was. It was all about relationship and it was about faith. And he was teaching me what that looked like. And so there was some some of the things he was telling me about his experiences that I couldn't shake. So he spoke about like hearing the voice of God. And it really resonated with me because I was having dreams. I was having these prophetic dreams that I couldn't explain. Well, and you couldn't explain it because it didn't fit in with your cosmology. Yeah. I mean, you could, you right. just didn't have, you wouldn't allow yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, am I, am I reading that correctly? Yeah. You that's, were getting that's this That's when stuff. I was in that phase saying, oh, it's the universe speaking to me. Yeah. Like, what yeah. is the universe? Yeah. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> what, is is Jupiter speaking to you? Is this Jupiter or is this Pluto? Maybe. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, I was I was telling myself all those lies. Um and it, I was okay with that for the moment, but really there was still that that question that, you know, well what is this cuz I know it's something. And so he really helped me to uncover the fact that it was I was angry because I felt like things didn't play out how I thought they were supposed to play out. Well, because they hadn't they hadn't played out the exactly, way yet. Exactly. And that's what he said. He challenged yeah. me. He was like, who told you God was done with you? Yeah. Who told you God was finished with what he was doing with this work? Yeah. And, you know, I thought back to that time that I prayed and, you know, I prayed and I asked him, you know, I said, you know, if you let me out of here, I'll get out and I'll tell the world what you did for me. But I wasn't ready if he would have done yeah. it that way. Of course you weren't. I didn't even know him at that time. How could I tell anybody about him and what he did for me if I didn't know him? And so I started looking at things in a different perspective where it's like, wait a minute, maybe I need to spend more time getting to know him and really trying to to put myself in a space where I can depend on him instead of these lawyers. Yeah. I could depend on him to free me instead of spending all these hours going yeah. through case law. You're again going thinking, up a system that was meant to break me. Thinking so. through the program. And I do I love mm-hmm. that you just said that. Going through a system that was meant to break you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's and that's so, powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I did. That's where, you know, I just I just had to surrender, right? Yeah. Where it's like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm gonna take that leap of faith and I'm gonna believe that you know, God is going to free me. I don't know how he's going to do it because it's a mess now. (laughs) I really can't see a way. I don't have any pills left, so I don't know what he's going to do here, but I'm going to believe. And so 
I did that. And my attorneys would look at me like I was absolutely nuts because, you know, I really didn't care to put much thought into, you know, figuring out next steps. I just said, I'm gonna get to know the Lord. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, they were, they were believers, but it's, it's a bit different. They were also like people who worked in the law. So they was like, well, this is how this works though. Yeah. And so that really played out when, um, when I was talking to him, I was like, God's going to get me out of here. And he was like, okay, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. And so my husband and I, we just continued to pray. And we were like, we're going to pray for God to give us guidance on this. So when my clemency preparation started, I said, you know, the Lord is telling me I need I need to, to put together this spreadsheet. And I'm going to put together the spreadsheet of all the people that we need letters from. We're going to ask to speak on my behalf. And I'm going to give that to my attorneys. And so that's what I did. And when they got this, they had this meeting. And they looked at what I had sent them. And they thought I'd lost my mind. Well, well what was because, on the spreadsheet? So not only did I have people who were in legislature, <laughs> I also had the victims' rights advocates here in Tennessee. So Tennessee Voices for Victims, um, right, uh, not not right on crime, but um, Tennessee Voices for Victims. And there was another one that I had there. And they were like, you want them to write you a letter for clemency? They don't, they don't do that, Centoya. I said, I'm telling you. <laughs> They're going to do it for me. The Lord said, put them on the list. And that's what I've done. So all we got to do is figure out who knows them and we're going to ask them. <laughs> And the worst thing they can do is tell us no, you know? Yeah. And But I don't believe they are, and they didn't. Yeah. Not only did they write me a letter, but they actually showed up to my hearing that I later got and testified on my behalf. Yeah. And so it was just every every person that, that I had put on that paper, they supported it. Yeah. And so this was maybe May, May or so of 2017, as we're preparing all this May, June, during the summer, we're preparing all this, putting this together, and around about that time, my attorneys got news that that appeal that was denied by the federal court was reopened. Wow. And that's something that they had never seen happen. Ever. Because In once, all their years. Once your habeas is denied and they say you have no cert, like, you don't see them get reopened like that. And so it was crazy. So now I had this other shot at this appeal and for me it was like I told you God said he's gonna do it he's gonna do it and so now you couldn't tell me anything well and and let's be clear there was a whole movement happening outside of that prison to free you not yet really not yet okay 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 tell me tell me tell me so and that's why I said you know he wrote me that in January this was happening in May May, June, July, when we were preparing all this. And so then I said, we're going to go even harder. Like, we're yeah. just going to continue speaking. Yeah, you, so you now, can't tell me anything because this is too, this nope. is too godlike. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to hear anything unless it was teaching me something to get closer to God. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even with my music, like, I want to listen to praise and worship. I'm not trying to listen to 101.1 The Beat. I need <laughs> to listen to my praise and worship. I'm going to get my praise and worship on. And I'm just going to continue to speak in faith to this impossible situation. And I did that with, you know, my husband, my now husband over the phone. And, you know, he was constantly ministering to me. And I was constantly just growing closer to God during that time. And that's all that mattered to me. That was all that mattered because I knew that was the only thing that it's did only, matter. It was the only way. It was the only it's way. the only way. Because you couldn't think your way out of the problem. Exactly. And so I kept doing that. And then, boom, out of nowhere, November around Thanksgiving 2017, that's when that whole movement started. 
That's on social media. It was actually a hashtag free Centoya. How? That, I, I just don't even know how that started and I told who you, started girl, it. It's, it's the Lord. <laughs> but who started it? Like, because I know Kim Kardashian was on the bandwagon and Rihanna and mm-hmm. T.I. and like, and they got all the people, LeBron James, who else? There were so many people who were like posting about you and saying like, this, this woman needs to be released. They mean nothing in the scheme of things. You know who did it? God did it because he can touch anybody. He doesn't care what your name is. He doesn't care where you come from. He doesn't even care where you are in your headspace. Like he can touch you. He can even cause your enemies to bless you. And so when I saw that happen, God did that. And it was the same hashtag your husband had written, right? Yes. Hashtag yes. Free Toya. You're now All the way in January with that letter that the Lord told him to write. He had no idea. Wow. Of knowing that. And this literally happened overnight. And when I called him after someone had said something about it, you know, he was he was out fishing in, in Houston. He was out fishing. <laughs> I don't and, see him as like a an angler. Oh yeah. He likes <laughs> Well he, he fishes um I don't know what he, I don't know about angling, but he just stands on the banks over there oh. by the gators and just fishes wow. in in Houston. But yeah. Wow. But um he was fishing with his dad, Melvin, and he was like, "Okay, well, what are you what are you surprised about? Yeah, Didn't well. I tell you that God is going to do things?" And and I go back to that letter, and he said, "God's going to cause people all across this world to be praying for you in your case for wow. your freedom." He spoke every single thing that was already happening, and so it was just like mind blowing for me because I go back to those stories in the Bible when you know God is speaking to people and they actually come to pass, yeah. and here it is, and that wasn't all. A few months after that. In March, you know, God spoke to my husband saying that I was about to come home. Yeah, wow. And his pastor had just told him a couple weeks before that we were going to need a date during the month of March, month of March, that was going to lead me one step closer to getting out. In 2018, March 2018. March 2018. And so we were waiting every single day, didn't hear anything. Very last day of March, we got a date for a clemency hearing before the parole board. Wow. Less than 1%. It was me. And so they told me that I would be 67 years old before I could ever meet the parole board. Wow. But I ended up meeting them when I was just 30, two months after I got that letter from them. Um, so, yeah, by this by this point, you couldn't tell me anything. Like, I just knew my only job, my only duty was to surrender to whatever God had going on. And I didn't care what it felt like because I looked back over how hard it was, me being in that prison, being in that box, all those obstacles that I had overcome, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything because I knew that he was doing something. I didn't know what it was, yeah. but I trusted it. Yeah. Well, and you didn't trust it initially. It was No. You, before you were you Bef- were digging your before. heels in the ground, you were angry about well, that it. That was for that decade it. when I was angry and I didn't believe. I'm saying now mm-hmm. when I was seeing how things were turning, it's like, whoa. whoa. Like, Look what happened when you surrendered. When you trust, yes. Wow. And so it's it's just... It's just now I was just doubling down. I took a job in the chapel because, again, that's all I wanted to be surrounded by. I didn't care about anything else. Anybody had any conversations with me, you better be talking about the Lord. I don't want to hear anything else. That's all I wanted to talk about. That's all I wanted to surround me. Just like I just wanted to be, you know, just consumed and surrounded by him at that point because there were so many people that were trying to speak doubt on the situation. Yeah, because they were trying to – they're like, okay, this has never happened Mm -hmm. before. And you're like, "Mm mm-mm. Yeah, and then they were telling me, like, you know, best-case scenario, he'll yeah. commute your sentence to 30 years. Yeah, you know? and you're like, You'll still nope. have 15 to do. I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. That was, 
That was my saying for everything. <laughs> At that time, I was rebuking folks left and right. <laughs> I rebuked my attorneys one day, and they looked at me like, okay, girl. Yeah. And you're like, nope, that's not how this is yeah. going to go. They were so frustrated with me as we were preparing for that hearing <laughs> because they came, and, you know, here you have all these people with all this experience. Ed Yarbrough was one of my yeah. attorneys, and he was sitting there, and he was getting so mad. He was like, we're going to walk through this testimony. I said, nope. The Lord's going to tell me what to say when to say it. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit guide me. Yeah, wow. Well, says, no, no. This is not how we do things, yeah. girl. <laughs> no, we're going to we're gonna talk about this hearing, and we're going to prepare you. I said, mm, I don't need it. I don't need it. Holy Spirit's going to tell me what to say when to say it. Wow. And so they were just like, fine, whatever. Yeah, and, and then finally they <laughs> gave up. And you're like, yes, that's what we need to get. We need to get to give up. That's what we need to get yeah. to. Yeah. So <laughs> get I know to surrender. Were, yeah, they were so frustrated. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the hearing went wonderfully. Yeah. Went wonderfully. And, um, I remember. What what did you feel like you were guided to say during the hearing? Do you remember? I don't even remember what I said. Mm. I don't. I just remember praying over that room, praying over that day. And when I was in there, I just kind of let him give me the words. Yeah. And that was my only prayer. So I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. Like what I said. How I, I couldn't even tell you. I do remember that before I walked in there, a um, few days before the hearing, my husband said, God just told me he's not going to let you out until you forgive your birth mother, which I was put up for adoption when right. I was a child. And I was like, ah, I forgive her. Oh, and he was like, nope. Mm, no uh-uh. That's no not don't. how this goes. <laughs> no, you don't. He said, you've got to be free from that before you could be free from this. Wow. And so I was like, Okay, fine. And so I did that work, and I said, okay, I've come to a place of forgiveness. He was like, can you see her and then say, hey, how you doing? I was like, yeah, I can do that. I feel like now at this point I've forgiven her to the point where I could do that. And God is so funny. Let me tell you something. (laughs) I had not seen this woman in years, 10 years, seen or heard from her anything because that's just, you know, that's just how that was. And I walk in that hearing, and don't you know she's the first person I see? Shut up. No. Well, you didn't expect that, did you? Did that, like, totally throw you off your game, or were you like, Ooh. I kind of laughed inside. I kind of laughed inside. Wow. And so I sat there, and the first thing, I don't know if, because I know it was filmed, but I don't know, but the first thing I did, I looked at her. She was sitting right there. I was like, hey, how you doing? Because <laughs> I said you, I can do it. You got there. Yeah, I got there. Wow. And so from then on, it was just like, I know you know what you're doing, so I'm just here. And so they voted. It was two people voted um, that I should not be released. Um, Two people voted that I should be released immediately. And two people voted that I should do 10 more years and then be released. So it was really, like, beautiful the way it was done because it was still, like, it was just all split up. Yeah. And it's like. No one knows the answer. Yeah, I know the answer because God (laughs) told me, like, I'm getting out. Yeah. I know it. And so months would go by with no word, and then here again with all the doubt. Oh, well, you know, it's probably going to be 30, and that's a split decision. If you looked yeah. in the media, it was like, it's a split decision. And, you yeah. have- and you're like, this is the perfect, this is the perfect framework for where, mm-hmm. like, this amazing testimony is going to yeah, come from. exactly. And I was like, well, I'm not worried about a thing. God's got it. And so the last few days of that year, you know, my husband was like, you need to go around and you need to start letting them walls know that the Lord has freed you and they got to comply. 
Mm. I said, I sure will. People looked at me like I lost my mind. But I started going around, standing before those concrete blocks and saying, you know what? My Father in Heaven has declared that I'm free. You have no choice but to comply. You must free me. You cannot hold me. You have no authority over me. And that next month, January, I was called down. Mm -hmm. I was called down. And before that, what... A lot of people, I don't I don't know if I wrote about this in my book, but a couple of weeks before that, I was getting these dreams. I started having these dreams where I was getting out. I was being released from prison, and it was dark and it was rainy, which didn't make sense because they always release people from prison around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it's always sunlight. It was a certain time during the day. Um, but I, 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 I believed it. I wasn't going to challenge it. I believed it. So I told my husband, and we would sit there and we would watch the forecast. Like, I was when's like, it okay, going to rain? Yes, <laughs> I'll probably get out this day. I'll probably get out that day. It's raining on Tuesday. And so we kept doing that. But the day they called me, the morning they called me, it was sunny. It was sunny. It was bright and sunny. But I just knew. I was standing on the top of the, it was like this balcony, what we call the catwalk in the prison. They had called me down and told me to go to the visitation gallery. For a visit. They didn't tell me what it was, just the visitation gallery, not visiting hours or anything. And there was a girl singing at the phone. She was like, go get your blessing, girl. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm about to do. And I walked out, sun in the sky. As I'm walking on the sidewalk, raindrops started falling. Mm. Raindrops started falling. And so I just knew, and I just started praising God all the way down the sidewalk. They told me I was getting out in August, that I was going to go to the um, – the annex, which is the release center. And I was going to take some classes to get prepared. And during that whole time, you know, that's when things started picking up. You had a lot of people planning to really be there for the media and things like that. And so they came up with this plan and they actually released me in the middle of the night. And so come August 7th, I was released in the middle of the night, pitch black and that whole night, it had been storming. Girl. And it was like, nobody mm. can ever nobody tell, can tell me you. anything about my God. Because yeah. I know he's real. I know he sees me. I know yeah. he hears me. And so for me, it's just about, it's informed how I live now. Because I think back to that time where I didn't know how things were going to play out. I was trying to think my way through things. I was trying to figure it out. But man, when you let go and you let God, mm. like things happen things happen. And so a lot of people, they like to paint it as though, you know, if if you follow Christ, um, if you live a life of faith, that your life is just going to be perfect. You're going to live this soft life. It's not that. Mm. It is not that. Mm -hmm. Um, If anything, it's harder. And even the Bible tells us that, you know, you're going to face struggle. If Christ struggled, what makes you think that you aren't? Mm. Right? He had all kinds of things thrown at him. He was he was vilified, right, during that time. Why wouldn't we be? Why wouldn't we be subject to some of that? Um, but there's just this peace that I have now and knowing that no matter what happens. Oh, you went, girl, you went to the worst of the worst. Yes, no matter what happens, he's got me. He's got yeah. me, even if it hurts, even if, you know, it seems like everything is going to fall apart. Mm-mm, I know he will come through at that last moment. And even do you expect it now? Like, oh, this is fun. Like, I expect for the very last moment for God to come through in the very last moment. Do you expect yeah. that now? And I don't always expect him to come through in a way that I think he should come mm-hmm. through like I used to. But sometimes the come through is that he puts things into perspective. 
And so for me, I'm coming to a place in my life where I know that he's going to do things that are good for the kingdom, right? And he will use me. And I, I ask that he uses me. And that calls for sacrifice a lot of times. Mm. So I may not live like, you know, this soft, happy, peaceful <laughs> life. I may not always have these, you know, happy endings to situations. Yeah. But I could see beauty in some of those things that are hurtful. And I can see what he does with that, you know. Um, so I don't always look for everything to have this nice, neat little bow. But sometimes I know that, you know, that there's there's a plan for it. Mm-hmm. And I trust it. There is, um, in the last couple of days, you and I started texting, you know, what songs we're listening to lately. And I've got to tell you, so you shared with me uh, Thy Will by Hilary Scott. Yes. I had never heard that song before. Mm-hmm. And I realized she released it years ago. But that's the thing, I think. Uh, the most beautiful thing about songs and art in general that was created from soul, when Mm -hmm. you create art from like soul and from spirit, that is always attached to your creation. So whenever she recorded that, she was in a place and I still feel that when I listen to that song. And so as I was listening to it, I'm not kidding you. I listened to it probably 30 times in the last 48 hours. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, God, it just gets in there, and you're like, oh, my yes. God. So that song, I started wondering, what does it mean to you? Why do you love that song so much, and why do you listen to it? Man, it's life, because sometimes, you know, you will be confused. You yeah. won't know what to do. You won't know what he's doing, yeah. but you just got to trust it. And so, like, again, even if it ends up in a place where it's going to hurt me, I'm going to lose something, if it's in your will, I know it's good. Yeah. I know it has a purpose and I want to be part of that however I can be. Yeah. That's fine. That is fine by me because for me it's just about living for him. Yeah. I don't have to see rewards here on heaven. I don't have to. Um I know that I can endure no matter you, what it feels you've like. You've been in through that the moment. worst, girl. Exactly. You have been through the worst. Like, and look what he did with it. Yeah. Look what he did with it. I prayed for him to free me. But he did it in a way that was freeing for so many other people. Because it showed power, right? It showed power and might, and, like, it broke everybody's paradigm about what was possible. Everything that happened Mm -hmm. to you was – every single part of your story was something that was completely inescapable, that everyone on your team said, well, this will never happen. And then time after time after time after time, it was like – these incredible turnarounds. Like, even down to, like, how much time you spend in prison. I love how you talk about – 51 versus 15 yes. and like that total flip it something. it's something turn that thing around tell and tell me all yes. about it like the moment you realized that you were supposed to have 51 years but you were given 15, 15. it was exactly the opposite of what you 15. were supposed to have and i'm going to tell you something about governor Haslam. <laughs> um so he and his wife actually came to visit me before i was released and you know we've We've seen each other since then. My husband and I have, have had shared meals with them. I just came from UT up there talking with his class. But what I respect so much about him is, like, he's so convicted that he's going to follow God no matter what. Even if he's in the realm of politics, doesn't matter. If God puts it on his heart to do something, that's what he's going to do. Mm. If you can imagine... It's not popular. You have to have some guts to do that and some trust to do something like that. If you can imagine the position that he was in and and all the pressure that he's getting from all sides, 
but he said he felt God's hand in it. He really felt God telling him to do exactly what he did. And that's what he did. That's bold. Yeah, it's super bold. That's very bold. Well, I think about even, too, what's happening now in our state, um, you know, after the we had a mass shooting here several weeks ago, and the things that are happening in our state house right now, and it's making national news. Mm-hmm. It's just wild. And I, I have found myself in the last few days consistently having these conversations with coworkers, you know, in commercial breaks during the during the um, newscast, going, where is the person who's going and who is the person who's going to stand up and say, stop all of this BS, like this back and forth, like who's going to stand up and and be bold and say, none of this makes sense, and we need to do what's right. And no one's doing it. I'm waiting for someone. That's not true. There are some people who are doing it. I'm waiting for the people with the highest power to say, hey, stop fighting. We can fix this. I, I want to believe that God is, God is dealing with somebody in there right now with that. Um, but, you know, I'm also aware of the fact that everybody is not here to do God's will. Mm-hmm. There are some people on this earth, and I've had to come to accept this, some people are here on this earth just to cause calamity. They don't serve who we serve. And, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that some of them are sitting there in the legislature, and so they're going to cause dissension. They're going to come against everything that is the right thing to do. And a lot of them will portray themselves as people who believe in the Word, but they don't act accordingly. But I do believe that there are people who are generally seeking God's heart and seeking his wisdom in this. And I believe that he's dealing with some people on that. So I have faith that, you know, they're going to show up and something's going to be done. But I also know that even if nothing is done by them, God's going to do something in a way that will just completely overhaul everything. Yeah. So he has a plan. He's going to work it out. Um, I think it's hopeful. Um when you know him in that way and when you come through what I've come through, because if you kind of just look at the situation as it is and accept it, (laughs) like, I mean, can you accept it? Like it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's like, you feel hopeless when you look at that and you hear some of the the things they say. We actually have the power to do something about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what's so wild to me about this current situation. It's like, no, we actually can do something about this. You You know know what I learned? So what I've learned that it's not going to be the systems that free us and that change things, right? It's not. God has to come in and touch the hearts and minds of people. That's the only way. That's what happened with mine. All the systems that I went through for freedom, they failed every single time. You can't think your way through the problem, right? It was God touching the hearts and minds of people, moving them, that ended up with me being free. So... There's going to have to be hearts and minds changed. Yeah. What is your prayer these days? Mm. His will be done. Again, because like I said, I'm saying that there are a lot more people out here who are going against what he would have us do. You have a lot of people who say that they're part of the faith and they are doing things that Jesus would never do if he was here. Yeah. That is not what he would do. That's not what he told you to do. Yeah. Where did you find that? <laughs> Who taught you that? Right. And why do you believe it so strongly? Yeah. yeah. And so I just I just really pray that that his will is going to be done. I pray that hearts open to him, that people actually start listening to him and letting him guide them. Because if not, like, we're just going to prolong it. Mm-hmm. Us 
being down in this world is just completely lost. I don't know what has happened down here in the last maybe, what, 10 years? 10 years? And you've only been out for a few, well, I mean, is it three and a half years? Am I doing my math right? Oh, you're coming up on four years out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's haywire. It's, been <laughs> it's haywire. I mean, not, that's not to say that we have a perfect history in this country. We absolutely do not. Right, right. Um, but I felt like we were really getting somewhere, like yeah. kind of closer to like in the nineties ish. I felt like we were we were headed mm. in one direction, but now it's like. But you know what? Like it, we keep having calamity. We have keep having financial calamity after financial calamity in this country. Mm. I think about like, and and maybe maybe that's a bigger, broader story that goes right along with what we're talking about in your own personal story of like calamity after calamity Mm -hmm. and things get so bad. I I believe that we get put in situations that force us into surrender. Yeah. And that, that the only option we have is surrender, which is why I just find your story to be so powerful because that's what life does, man. Like it just keeps forcing you and forcing you and forcing you until you learn the lesson Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to learn. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what do you think, what lesson do you think you have learned from all of it? All of these, gosh, since 2004 or before. What's God's the plan is always way better than yours. <laughs> like don't, <laughs> don't rack your brain trying to, you know, fit a square peg into a round hole, right? Like seek him and he'll show you the way. He'll, he'll guide you through that. Like he can free you from that. Mm. Um, doesn't matter what it is. And I think a lot of times we spend a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of effort, like into these pursuits that lead absolutely nowhere. The world tells us we need to be one way, we need to do this thing to be successful or to get to this point. And then when you follow God, like sometimes, you know, you find none of that matters. Mm-hmm. If you ask me, none of that really matters. I find success to be when I feel I'm in a place where He's using me. Mm-hmm. And it could be little things, just the little daily things. When I know that, okay, I still hear him. Mm. I'm still connected to him. Like to me, that's the only success that matters. Yeah. No one else could read my book. No one else could book me to speak. I couldn't sell another bar of soap. I'd be okay with that as long as I'm walking in the way that he wants me to. And so that's the kind of surrender that I practice yeah. where that's the only place I want to be is in his will and doing what he has me to do, because that's the only thing that really matters to me now. Well, because there's hardship. I mean, there's hardship anywhere, but I feel like it's a deeper hardship when there's not surrender. Yeah. That's been my experience is it's because you, because hardship when we're trying to do things on our own eventually pushes us to the end of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like a falling off of the cliff of this ego cliff. Like that's actually where you need to be to get into full surrender. That's been my experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Let me ask you this. You do you you mentioned your speaking career. You speak all over. You speak even in different states to wardens. You uh, help prison systems understand what they could do to improve. Um, you speak to young girls as well. You you just speak to I'm sure anyone who will hear your message and wants to hear your message. Who are your favorite people to speak to and what's the greatest impact you find that you have? My favorite are absolutely the girls, um, the young girls, just because I feel like I'm speaking to myself at that age. Like um, teenagers or? Oh, yeah. So teenagers, specifically the teenagers that most people have given up on. Mm. And so I get to go. I'm honored to be able to go 
every week when I'm in town to a facility here in Nashville um, of kids who are in DCS custody for juvenile justice. And like these are kids, I, I was literally in facilities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything that they're going through, like you can't even imagine some of the stuff they deal with, oh, but they are some of the most amazing, incredible, tenacious, strong yeah. girls that you have ever met. And I love them, and I just love being around them. So do you get to just sit with them and love on them and talk to them? I get to or love like- on them. I get to feed them. I always like to feed them full of candy. Um, <laughs> so you bring that with you, and you're allowed to oh, bring yes. that? Okay. Yes, and that's favor, honey, because normally you can't. Yeah, can't I was going to get- say, that's like contraband, yes. isn't it? <laughs> that, is, that is favor, because they let me. They say, yeah, that's what you want to do, Centoya. That's what you can yeah. do. And so I get to bring them meals. I get to bring them snacks. I have an entire, like, cart Um so someone had blessed me through the nonprofit because Epic you know, Girl, no, or through somebody is, else. So my nonprofit, the JFAM Foundation, gotcha. I partner with Epic Girl. Gotcha. And gotcha. so Epic Girl has classes there. Okay. But they blessed me to be able to go and just buy all the crafts. I pretty much bought out half a Hobby Lobby, Joanne's, <sighs> Michaels, Lobby. all of them. <laughs> I did too. It's so fun. But I have this big old cart and take it in there we do crafts so we'll make bracelets we'll make christmas ornaments we'll make whatever how, ma- how long do you spend there like hours when you well go? it's supposed to be an hour but sometimes it's longer okay, okay. So, i yeah. won't ask any more yeah. questions next i'm making soap with them okay 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 They've i love already it said i, love I it. can make soap i love so. it okay so keep telling me your story though so you go in there so with yeah. all your stuff so so the course that i teach with them is the leadership course but I really teach them how to lead from a place of being a steward of everything that God has given you, everything. So all of your talents, all of your resources, all of your pain, like being a good steward of that um, and using that in a way that's beneficial to others, mm-hmm. that is really beneficial to letting them see his plan and, and his ways and his will and just his love. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's really fun. It's really fun for me. And it's, it's just such a full circle moment, you know, and I really wish I would have had someone who was doing that when I was that age. So it's a blessing that that now he's put me in this position where I can yeah. do that with him. But. I was I was talking with my mom this morning. My parents are in town um, this weekend because they're actually going to move to Nashville. I'm so excited. And yeah. so uh, my from mom where? from South Carolina. I'm okay. from South Carolina. Um, and so my mom was like, you know, who, tell me about who you're interviewing today. And I just briefly shared your story. And I'm not kidding. She started crying and she's like, how can I support this woman? So if anyone else is listening and it's like, how can I support this woman? Do we need to give to JFAM Foundation? How do we do that? I mean, that would be a blessing. You can give to JFAM Foundation. Um, you can buy the soap. Yeah. So soapandwaterorganics.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it looks like it's my company. It's not. That's the Lord's thing he's doing. <laughs> I'm just kind of in there working for him. And so that's really funding a lot of the work that we do. Mm-hmm. So I found that a lot of times people don't necessarily just kind of want to give for a receipt because most people don't itemize anyway. And, you know, if the God, Lord don't put it on their heart to do it, they don't want to do it. And But they're more comfortable buying something that benefits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So all the soap sales, like that's going to benefit the girls. And they're actually working on a project with the soap to figure out for the month of July, like how to use that in a way to combat trafficking. So mm. we're trying to be really creative with that. So those are two ways that you can do that. Yeah, I love you that. You can also buy the book. Yeah, I love that. Are you working on another book? Oh, why did you ask me that? Because here's the thing. <laughs> it's like I had read something from a couple of years ago. She's working on her second book. And then I saw it nowhere else. And then I was like, I, and then that's just sort of what like marinated for me for a yeah. while. It's like, 
what is she working on? Because that's my goal in every interview is to get really, really down to like, let's go deeper and deeper and deeper. So the fact that you just so, reacted that way about you writing a second book makes me so happy. I was I was going to because again I I thought that's what I should do. Mm. Like that's what I should show people and tell people what I'm doing now. But it's like why? Mm. God didn't tell me to write that yet. And uh -huh. he told me to write that first one. But, yeah, I started and it just wasn't coming. And it reminded me when I first started that first book, I had started it years before I actually wrote it. But it just wasn't coming. And it would come up missing and shakedowns yeah. and things yeah, like that. Yeah. And it was like I was forcing it. Same thing when I, I took the, the LSAT the earlier no, last year took the LSAT everybody's like oh man you'd be great at law school you should go to yeah. law school you'd be a great lawyer I'm like okay I'll do it pay the 500 and something dollars for <laughs> for the the test and and all the reports and then it's like I, I don't feel him telling me to do this yeah wow and so this is not what I'm gonna do and then he tells me okay make soap <laughs> okay which is funny because that's the soap is how you and I even connected it was one of my colleagues who had interviewed you and soap comes up and he's like you make soap? Lauren Lowry makes soap because I literally make soap. your soap is amazing. Thanks. And, and your soap beautiful. is amazing. Thank you. But you and I both have said the same thing of like, you're the only person in real life who I actually know outside of like YouTube channels who actually makes soap. Yes. And I feel like everybody should make it. Everybody should so make it great. at least once. Yes. It's so great. So I, awesome. I've been making soap for, I mean, it was my lingering COVID hobby and every single guest of this podcast gets one or two bars of my soap because it's, to me, it's like, it's in the same way when you feed someone, mm -hmm. that's how, that's one of the ways we can show love and nurturing. Soap is that same way for me because it was made with love and intention. And so like you are slathering your body with love and intention, mm -hmm. which what a wonderful thing to do, you know, as opposed to like slathering your body with anything else, hate or disdain or, oh, I got this job. I have to be here. No. Nope. No, nope, there's just more love and spirit and intention and everything. Yeah. So I, that's why I love giving that. Yes. And tell it really quickly I'm how you got. i excited to use it. Well, I mean, look, are you going to have a spiritual experience using my soap? Probably not. But, like, just know that it was. It smells or, like it. <laughs> or maybe you will. I don't know. Um, but tell me tell me the fun story of how you even started making soap. Because it, I'm sure most people are like, you make soap? How random. It is random. It is totally it's random. It's very random. So it started kind of what you were saying. So when I was thinking about gifts for family and friends over the holidays, I said, you know, I'm going to make like some body butter, but not the, the regular body butter. I'm going to make an emulsified body mm. butter. And if you know anything about like formulating things like that, that's more complicated yeah. and you got to use preservatives and things like that. And so then I'm thinking, well, how do I find a natural preservative? Okay, maybe this one. And, and it's like, oh, I'm not really satisfied with that. And so my husband, he says to me, he says, you know what, what that is, right? You know, God's just giving you something. I was like, what? He's just giving you something else to steward. And like to use, like you just have to ask him what he's trying to do with it. I was like, huh. And so then he said, you should make soap just out of the blue one day. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to make soap. I don't know how to do that. YouTube does. Right. <laughs> yes. Mrs. Soap and Clay has taught me most of the things I know about soap making. Um, but yeah. And it's like, okay, I'm going to learn this. And then like it just started to take shape. It's like, well, what would I even call it? And then I said, soap and water. Yeah. Because every time you ask my husband, he always smells incredible in addition to looking great. 
<laughs> and you ask him what he's he's wearing, and he always says soap and water, soap and water. So one, I get free marketing anytime someone asks him what he's wearing, why he smells so good. Um, and two, like the Lord just showed me, stewardship over accumulation of profit and partnership with the living water. And I was like, that's it. Yeah, which is soap. That that's is the acronym it. for soap. Right. And so like, and that just like really kicked it off where it's like, this isn't like a business pursuit yeah. for me. This is an opportunity to steward something. So not just to steward the resources that it would bring in for, you know, the population that I serve, but um, to steward those relationships. And so I have like this incredible community woman that I'm connected to where they're all like, I'll come over and I'll help and I'll do this and I'll help you package and mm. I'll help you make it. You got to show me what to do, but I'll help you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, I've always envisioned this place where the young girls that I serve can have that community. Cause I know it was so impactful for me when I was part of that Lipscomb community yeah. and they really don't have that, that community of healthy relationships and the people really pouring into them. So eventually that's where I want to be, but it's like, now I see how it's shaping up and then it's about stewarding, you know, opportunities. And so I have an opportunity to connect with people maybe in Indiana who are ordering that soap and maybe they go going through something and they need to hear a word. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if God puts it on my heart, uh, a certain verse, I put that up. Every, every one of my bars has a certain verse on it, whatever mm-hmm. I feel on for On the that, box, you're saying. Soap, yeah. and yeah, I'm writing notes. And my husband was like, you're going to write notes for everybody? Yes, I yes, am. Yes, I am. Yeah, I love that. That's, yes, I am. That's and intention. So, that's, that's yeah. yeah, I love and that. it takes up, like, I was already super busy with everything else I do. Girl. And it takes up about, like, 85% of my time now. But funny? I love it. <laughs> I love funny? it. Yes. My friends are like, how do you even find time yeah, for all yeah. this? And it's like... I don't know. It's just God gave it to me. Yep. I'm going with it. Well, that's so. it's funny you say that. I actually feel that about um, all the things I do. And I also say, too, like when you are called to do something, mm-hmm. the time just, I don't know, it just appears. People ask me all the time, how do you have, where do you find the time to do this and this and this? And I'm like, I love it. And I'm, it's a calling. And I don't know what else to tell you other than I feel like the wind's at my back. And I'm just, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I, yeah. I don't know how else you want me to describe it because that's the truth. And then you, you get to a point, too, where you know you're called to it because you get aggravated when you get called to do other things where it's like, yeah, I don't, feel like, I don't yeah. feel like doing this. I don't need to go to the store all out in Cold yeah. Springs. Let me see if I can go pick it up because I really got to fix this batch. I, I got to do, do this. this. And yeah. Like, yeah, sometimes I forget to feed my husband. <laughs> uh, yeah. Bless his heart. Um, before I let you go, I'm going to tell you one quick story. I realized in 2019, after you had gotten out, um, I remember my boss at the time uh, asking me to come in and do this big interview um, with someone, and some, something like fell through. The big interview was with you, and I ended up not doing it for some reason. I forget, like either I was out of town or I was maybe I had a sick kid. I don't remember. But I've always thought. I remembered at that time in 2019, feeling like like knowing in my heart, it's okay. I'll. There will be another chance. Oh, my I just, God. I just didn't know who or what or when. It was, it was a guy that did that interview? I don't remember who did it. Maybe. I remember that. It was Channel 4, yeah, correct? Yeah. I'm going to tell you something. Tell me. I went to think, because you you know, you know, sent me the guest prep of like what to wear and things like yeah. this. And I had in my mind, I knew a dress I was going to wear. Yeah. I could not find that dress for anything and I guess I must have given it away. I don't know why, because I love this dress. I could not find this dress anywhere. And so I said, I'm going to wear this. And I'm just going to throw my jacket on because it may be a little chilly. And then I thought on the way over here, 
man, I already wore this for Channel 4. Oh, that was so long ago. That interview that you were supposed to do, I was wearing this exact thing. No thing. way. I was. And I was probably like, oh, gosh. she's wearing Who yes, cares? I, I wear clothes yeah. over and over That's and over crazy. again. Isn't so that this funny? is your second chance. I got ready the same exact way. I wore the same exact thing. That's and here so we funny. are. Yeah. It was always meant to be. Yeah. My husband always says, you know, you'll get the counterfeit before you get the real thing. So Ooh. this is what God intended. Ooh, yeah. get the counterfeit. I always Not say that he was <laughs> counterfeit, whoever that is. So, yes. I Sorry love that. to hear this. But I just know, like, I would have never been in the place to have this kind of conversation with you three, four years ago. Like, I wasn't in the place to do that. Yeah. You know? And that, I think, speaks to our own personal evolution that we all have, you know, as we... It's the it's the picture I gave earlier of like falling off the ego cliff. Like when you get pushed so hard that you realize my only choice is surrender. Mm -hmm. I wasn't off the cliff yet in 2019. I'm I'm well off the cliff now, and I'm yeah. like free fall. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This has been nice. Good. Let me give you a hug, girl. Okay. God, don't you just love her? Listening back to this recording had me in awe of how much healing Centoya has done. She is a completely different person than the one who went into prison. She's healed. She's changed. And now she's changing the lives of other people, too. I hope this episode makes you do some really deep thinking about what prison you've allowed yourself to be locked up in. Awareness around that is truly the first step. Understanding that there's always a way out. You have to choose that way and surrender. After recording this episode with Centoya, I found myself uh, coming up against a couple of major mountains and saying to myself, if Centoya can get out of freaking prison, I can certainly get out of this. <laughs> so I encourage you, find the courage to just let go. Let things happen. Believe wholeheartedly that the best is coming for you and then stop trying to control it. I believe in you. As you go through this week, I encourage you to shine your light, lead with your heart, and live life purposefully. I'm Lauren Lowry, and this is Amstigator. <laughs>